morning. It's good to see everyone. I just want to echo what Paul said, um, that it is good to see everyone here. It's good to see visitors. Also, if I haven't met you, um, even if you've been here a while and we haven't had a chance to meet, I would just love to uh, meet you, get to know your name, and uh, move forward from there. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're picking up in Matthew chapter 6, which is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. At verse 19. Matthew six nineteen. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we read in these words of yours that your call to us is to have our treasure in you. I pray, Father, that as we hear from your word this morning, that our hearts would trust you and trust your provision for us. I pray, Father, most of all, that we understand you and your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our culture is filled with anxiety. The National Institutes of Health estimates that nearly one-third of U.S. citizens 
experience some kind of anxiety episode in their life. It's a real problem that many of us face. A pastor and author named Michael Reeves recently wrote, as a whole, we are an increasingly anxious and uncertain culture. Anyone in management knows about the staggering proliferation of bureaucratic red tape around health and safety, yet it has not made us feel safer. If anything, we triple check our locks and even more obsessively make sure our windows are shut. The certain safety we long for evades us, leaving us feeling vulnerable like victims at the slim mercy of everyone and everything else. A similar type of anxiety exists in relation to the basic necessities of life, food and clothing. We make sure our cupboards and our pantries are stocked, that our closets are loaded with something to wear, but when our food staples run low or our laundry starts to pile up, we start to go into a panic about how the next day is going to work out. This is all just a small symptom of what is really a deeper problem. The main idea for this morning from this text is that Jesus teaches what it looks like to have a greater righteousness in, relationship to the wor- in our relationship with the things of this world, specifically by confronting what we are trusting in and what we are serving. To put it succinctly, Jesus shows how true devotion to God frees us from the shackles of anxiety. Jesus shows how true devotion to God frees us from the shackles of anxiety. And the truth that we all face is that every one of us, in some measure, deals with some kind of anxiety. Sometimes it's really mild, we may not even really notice it. Sometimes it's very intense and we can't escape it. We worry, though, about all sorts of things. But what is the big deal about worry or anxiety, especially when it's about finances and possessions? Well, what this worry betrays is a lack of trusting that God has his good for you. It's a lack of believing that God provides all that we really need. Ultimately, it is a lack of faith. But to set our hearts in the right direction... Jesus tells his disciples that God provides all they need for them. He reminds them in this passage that he knows what you need more than you do. And that is why God warns us and also encourages us to find our comforts and our pleasures in God himself through his word. The promise of eternal reward is meant to free us from anxiety. The opposite of anxiety is what? It's comfort. It's peace. And the peace comes from knowing that what you have is everything that you need as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Or to put it a different way, we know that we have all that we need because we are disciples of Jesus. So freedom from anxiety is found by pursuing an undivided and devoted loyalty to God because he has prepared for you a kingdom. So the main idea, if you didn't get it the first time, is that Jesus shows how true devotion to God frees us from anxiety. How do we get to a point of true devotion, though? Jesus gives us the answer in Matthew six nineteen through 24. From this beginning part of what we read this morning, to be free from anxiety, we, we, need to, we see that we need to prioritize three things. First, you must seek your treasure in heaven. 
Second, you must rid yourself of covetousness. And third, you must narrow your devotion to God alone. So first, Jesus tells us that we must be laying up our treasures in heaven. And since we're jumping into the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, I'll take a brief moment to catch us up to speed. So back in May, as Paul mentioned, we looked at chapter 5 and chapter, the beginning of chapter 6 of Matthew, the first half of the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, we see where true blessedness is really found. We got a picture of the heart level of the law. We saw in the first part of chapter 6 that Jesus gives us a warning about not doing our righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. And the purpose for that was because when we do things in front of others, we're seeking a reward from them. Instead, we should be trusting that our Father who sees in secret will reward us. In verses 19 through 21, where we started reading this morning, serve as a kind of conclusion to that. We see in this way that reward and treasure are related ideas. This, also, this passage also is an introduction to the rest of the chapter. And the reason I want to point that out is that the remedy to the problem of seeking reward from men and the remedy for having anxiety over our possessions is really found in the same thing. The whole latter half of chapter 6, though, has to do with material possessions. In verses 19 through 24... They're the foundation for how we live so as not to be anxious regarding our material possessions. These verses show what it means to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And they show what it means to truly trust in God. And if your copy of the scripture has paragraphs, you'll notice that verses 19 through 24 has three indentations. The first paragraph, verses 19 through 21. The second, verses 22 to 23. And the last is just verse 24. And this is how we're going to break up most of what we look at this morning. The first paragraph's meaning that has to do with where we store up our treasures. The meaning of this is pretty obvious. There's two commands here, one negative and one positive. Do not lay up your treasures on earth, but do lay up your treasures in heaven. And Jesus draws a contrast between earthly treasures and heavenly treasures. On earth, they decay and they rot. They can be stolen, but in heaven, they're preserved. In heaven, they are eternal, but on earth, they are temporary. But the key word is treasure. We need to keep in mind that there's a difference between possessions and treasures. Jesus is not telling us not to have possessions. He's not telling us not to store up anything for ourselves. Scripture does not anywhere forbid having private property. Otherwise, the command not to steal would be meaningless. The value of treasure, though, as Matthew seems to understand it, is that it is such, it has such a value that a person is willing to do anything and everything in order to obtain it. The parable of the hidden treasure in Matthew 13 illustrates this understanding. This parable shows how a man finds a treasure in a field and he sells everything that he has and goes and buys that field. And Jesus also does not tell us to not store up treasures at all. In fact, he tells us that we are to lay up our treasures in heaven. But that is where we need to see where our treasures are laid up. The reason for that, though, is given in verse 21. This is the ground about why we need to be careful about where our treasures are. And the reason why that where is important is because it's a matter of your heart. Where your treasures are, there your heart will be also. 
The point is that most things that are treasured occupies what our hearts long for, what our hearts desire. And the heart, in the biblical terms, is where we understand where the center of the will and the emotions, everything that has to do with our personality, rests. And the most cherished treasure, and we need to really think about this, the most cherished treasure subtly but infallibly controls everything that we do. Psalm 73 is a remarkably honest prayer of confession about the allure of pursuing earthly prosperity and treasure like the godless wicked. He confesses his envy and speaks of what his eyes see regarding them. They are well-fed, face no troubles, are always at ease as they increase in their riches. And the psalmist confesses that in his heart, he thought that it had been in vain that he's kept his heart clean and not pursued these things. But then in verses 16 and 17, the psalmist, Asaph, reveals how he comes to his senses. It reads, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He remembers that the wicked, the ones that just pursue the treasures of the world, will perish. And that he, in his envy, had become like the beasts that perish. He is also reminded that God is with him. And in verse 25, he confesses, Whom have, ha- have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He reminded himself that his treasure was in heaven with God himself. And the allure of earthly riches that he was struggling with before started to fade away. When we think of who is the richest and wisest man who's ever lived, we often think of King Solomon, which Jesus references in this passage. He, though, did not guard his heart like Asaph does in our psalm. In 1 Kings 11, we read, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, Neither shall they with you, and this is why, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart, where? Not just to treasures, but after other gods. And his heart was not truly, wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And this last sentence is the most convicting of it. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. After this, Solomon had every reason to feel anxious because the Lord was angry with him and he was told that the kingdom would be ripped apart in the hands of his son. Solomon did not guard his heart against idolatry. He went out after other gods because of the wives that he had taken because he had found a new treasure. Proverbs 4.23 tells us, Keep your heart with all vigilance. Or, yeah, vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. So the question you must ask yourself is, where is my heart? If your heart, your thoughts, where you set your hope, is on money, possessions, status, you will have Anxiety. All of these things will pass away, and you know it. Most of us live paycheck to paycheck. 
We may be able to put some money away into savings, but we all know that a rainy day is coming. We all have unexpected expenses that crop up and make things go as not as we had hoped. Our roof needs replaced. Our kids grow six inches overnight and they need a new set of clothes. Your daughter gets married and the next one's just around the corner. You or, you or your spouse, on a more serious note, may get really sick and face unexpected medical bills that are far beyond your reach. And these can all cause an anxiety if our hope or our treasure is in this world. And I don't want to make light of that, but the, the truth is, is that we don't have to. And I don't want to downplay the difficulties that these really have, but there is a way to face these problems that this world gives us even those that cause real financial strain. There's a way to face these things in order to have peace. How do we do that? How do we lay up treasures in heaven such that this is not overwhelming for us? And the first is to remember that God gives us every spiritual blessing in Christ. We've been hearing that for the past, well, all of summer. We heard it again this morning. We have an eternal inheritance It's preserved by God himself. And you must view God as the source of everything that you ever have had, everything that you will have, everything that you'll ever need. And when we have this mindset, knowing that all we have comes from him, good or bad, we begin to be freed from the trap of seeing the things of this world as our treasure. We can certainly enjoy that God gives God that God gives to us, the gifts that God gives. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6.17, God tells the rich not to be haughty, not to set set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We We can enjoy the things of this world, but we can do so without being enslaved to them, and that's the key issue. The second way we lay up treasures in heaven is by using the treasures that we have, the possessions that we have, to serve others. We do this in simple ways like sharing a meal with someone. We give to our church. We even give to strangers or people that are falling on hard times. When the resources that we have been given by God don't become our treasures so that we hoard them, but become a means of ministry to others, that is a way for us to lay up treasures in heaven, so to speak by finding God as our ultimate hope and joy, and by using the things that he gives us to serve his people. So first, Jesus tells us to lay up our treasures in heaven. And second, he also tells us to be single-minded, which comes to our second point, which I have said that you must rid yourself of or repent of covetousness. In order to be free from anxiety, you need to rid yourself of covetousness. And if you're looking at your Bible, you're probably thinking, wait a minute, I don't see covetousness here. So let me explain it. Matthew 6, 22 through 23 reads, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now this is a really weird figure of speech thrown right in the middle of this section. It's notoriously difficult to interpret because we just think literally sometimes about eyes and all this other stuff, and we disconnect it from the context. So how does it fit into the context? 
were helped by seeing that it is a literary sandwich, essentially, between verses 19 to 21 and verse 24. All of that section is addressing the same thing with material goods, and he uses this figure of speech, this parable of the eye, to highlight the importance of single-minded devotion. The previous and latter verses both address possessions, treasure, or money. So let's walk through this. The first phrase, the eye is the lamp of the body. That's confusing to us sometimes because we think of the eye scientifically as where light enters in. But what he is saying is that this is the lamp. And what he's saying is that the eye, what the eye looks at shines on what the heart is focused on. In the ancient world, the eye was understood to reflect that, what the, what the heart was focused on. And the word that is translated as healthy can also be translated as genuine, sincere, or single. So if an eye is single, it is healthy because it's focused. And a healthy eye is contrasted to a bad eye. The bad, word bad, is translated from the same word that we get the word evil in our Bibles. And the evil eye in this time period and culture was known as belonging to a deceptive or duplicitous, hypocritical, or greedy person. A bad eye leads to darkness. And what kind of darkness? Well, I believe the rest of the passage will fill that out. But to sum up this little parable, it describes the focus of the heart and its effects. A healthy eye is an eye that is singularly devoted to what it looks after. While the bad evil eye is focused on earthly treasure, one results in generosity and the other results in greed or covetousness. One is singularly devoted to God and the other is devoted to self. Another way the bad eye can be understood is contrasted, in contrast to the healthy eye is, is a double-mindedness, divided attention type of thing. And Jesus illustrates the danger of that as well in his parable in Matthew 13 on the soils. In this parable, the soil represents different types of people, and the seed that's thrown represents the truths of the gospel. In Matthew 13, 23, 13, 22, he says, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The seed of the gospel will be unfruitful in your own life when the thorns that are the anxieties of this world um, or the thorns of riches and the anxieties of the world capture our attention in a way that draws us away from trusting in the Lord. James 1, verses 6 through 8 says that the double-minded man will have no confidence in what the Lord provides. He says, regarding prayer and, and for wisdom and trials, he says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Last summer, I began to suffer from my own kind of double vision. It was rather sudden, and at first, I didn't really know what was going on. But all I knew was that I had a hard time focusing on whatever I was trying to put my attention on. And over the course of a couple of weeks, I, I realized that the focus of my eyes had actually shifted so that I could not easily align my eyes onto a single point. Whether near or far, words would overlap. And there was, in a physical sense, my eyes were not single. And in order for me to be focused again, I needed to have my sight corrected. 
And just as our physical sight may need, be, need to be corrected, Jesus helps us understand that our spiritual sight also needs to be corrected if we're dealing with anxiety. So the question that comes to you is this. What is your attention focused on? Is it divided, or is it focused on things that are not something that God would have you focus your, question, your attention on? Jesus says in verse 23 that if your eye is bad, if your spiritual sight is not singular, you will be full of darkness. And this is a heavy saying to be thinking about. A better question may be, what is dividing your attention away from singular trust in the Lord? Or to put it more bluntly, what makes you covetous? Jesus seeks to alleviate our anxiety. He does so by talking about our hearts and what we treasure. He does it by addressing our propensity to be covetous or double-minded. And covetousness and double-mindedness, that's what prevents us from serving God alone, which brings us to our last point. In order to be free from anxiety, you must narrow your devotion to God alone. In order to be free from anxiety, you must narrow your devotion to God alone. Verse 24 closes this three-paragraph section by addressing love and devotion. And it really carries on the idea that began to focus our attention in the previous parable. He makes it plain that you have a master that you serve, and your heart is not able to serve both God and money. Though there's not a command in this verse, it is a call for sincerity and singleness in our love and devotion to God himself. The word translated as money is from the Greek word mammon, which really just means anything that's possession-wise. So we can't just focus on the issue of money itself. The language contrasting serving God or money when Jesus says, you know, you're going to have to serve a master, would likely have brought to mind to his Jewish audience Joshua 24.15. At the end of the conquest of the promised land, Joshua holds a covenant renewal ceremony in which he calls upon the people to choose this day whom they would serve. If they were to serve the Lord, they need to put away the foreign gods that their fathers served beyond the river. And this is an either-or choice. Just as it was for them, it is for us. There's not room for dual ownership, dual service. To be devoted to someone is to hold them fast. It's singular. It's committed. It's the type of commitment, the holding fast of a husband to his wife, or an elder or a pastor to the gospel. Titus 1.9 says that the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. There's hardly a stronger commitment, but that's what Jesus is calling us to here. We show our love for Christ through our devotion to him, by choosing to serve him above any other. But how do we do this? How do we have such a love for Christ that drowns out the allure of the world and such that the possessions that we long for, the possessions that we have, cause us to have anxiety over them. Well, one, we see it first in the use of our time. This doesn't include our obligations. We have to have jobs. There's things that are necessary to be done to provide for ourselves and our family. But a, a real common application for today, or an implication, is when does the job become the means of just serving your family or serving your church, rather than a means to get something else. I'm going to be black and white here, and I understand that there's room in the middle, but there's a reality that I see every day. 
there are people who choose to work extra hours at the expense of being with their family or at the expense of being in some community like this just so that their kids or their spouse can have the best stuff. They will work 80 hours a week just so life is easier, but they're never satisfied with what they actually earn. They're never satisfied with the stuff that they get. There's always a need for more. A man who loves his wife and children and a man who loves God is going to avoid doing those extra unnecessary work. Not because... Um, we'll, see, we'll define that as unnecessary because it, it doesn't need to happen. And a man's going to avoid those things so that he can indeed do what God has called him to do in service of his family and others. This requires wisdom. It requires grace. We live in a world that uses money, that we operate on money. We need it to pay the bills. But it is a matter of, bless, of balancing need over want. It's a matter of working to serve in a way that God would ha- have you serve others. But what would cause us to love God in such a way so that we don't love money? Well, God's love for us displayed in the gospel is what gives us a love that overcomes a love for this world. What does that love look like? What does God's love look like that would make us love him back? Well, remember that you were once enemies of God. You served yourself and this world above him. We heard two weeks ago from Ephesians 2 that our covetousness, our idolatry, before we turned to him, made us children of wrath. We were his enemies. We did everything necessary in order to bring God's condemnation upon us, but instead, God had mercy on us. He reconciled us to himself, as we see in Romans 5.10, through the death of his son. And if God did not spare his own son who after death was raised to life, as we read in Romans 8.32, since this is so, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? God has saved you by his grace. You're only called to turn to him, away from your idols, away from what would bring you anxiety, so that you can be free from anxiety. You overcome a love for the world by seeing that God has made himself your father, by adopting you. You overcome a love for the world by saying that in God, you do have everything that you need. And you overcome a love for the world by knowing that he forgives you of all of your sins. But if you do not have a love for God, the love of the Father is not in you. The Apostle John warns in 1 John 2, 15-17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we need to ask ourselves, how is the teaching about treasure? How is the teaching about eye lamps? Master selection? How is all of this related to anxiety? We see in the text that there is a therefore, or for this reason in Matthew 6.25, that ties grammatically the previous section to this next section. The command to not be anxious is directly related to where you lay up your treasure, to where you have your focus on, and to who or what you serve. Jesus gives the three examples that we read about, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will put on. And these are just simple examples of everyday needs. It's 
It's not a blanket policy to forbid all anxiety, though. I want to make that clear. There are many situations in this life that are bound to give us some kind of anxiety. Not every type of anxiety is something that Jesus is calling sin. There's terrible things that can happen that can cause us some serious concerns. When we're concerned about somebody, it leads us to action. It leads us to prayer. Um, In Philippians, the apostle Paul had spoken of Timothy's concern, same word as anxiety, which he had had for the Philippian believers. But Jesus presents his command to not be anxious based on whether, based on an assessment of whether they're trusting in what God provides for them. He points to the birds as an example. They don't have to work, but they get their food. He points to the grass. I don't know how we do deal with that. Uh, we see that it's beautifully adorned, though. They're, you know. But, you know, and, and Jesus isn't telling everybody to sit on their thumbs and wait for God to, you know, feed them by the brook, by crows, bringing them food, or for clothes to grow on their back. Um, he probably has the work ethic of Proverbs. Uh, but what he is doing is he's directing us at not having an unreasonable concern about what we need. A concern that neglects the, the truth that God has our concerns in his mind. And most important for us to mention, to, to, to re- realize in this section, is that Jesus says the Gentiles seek after all of these things. Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, all of his followers are Jews. And this would have been a stinging comparison for them to hear. And the reason for that is that the Gentiles were the godless, you know, godless people that didn't know him. This, of course, changes over the gospel. You know, by the end of of Matthew's gospel, we see that his disciples are to go and make disciples of all nations, same word as Gentiles. But in the context here, Jesus is drawing this distinction, this contrast with Gentiles, because he is speaking to his disciples. And as as his disciples today, we read this passage, and we need to understand that he is talking to us as his disciples and as his people. And that's the foundation for why that's here. Jesus is telling us what it looks like to be his disciple throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And if we're his disciple, we're part of God's people, and we're part of God's kingdom. And this is significant. It's as significant as he looks now to say, the Gentiles seek after these things in regard to anxiety. To be a Gentile was to be an idolater, and he expects his disciples to understand the implications of this at that time. And we admit, you know, we don't get that stinging effect. So if you'll bear with me for a minute, we're going to take a little short journey back to Deuteronomy. And if you want to follow along, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, in Deuteronomy 1 through 4, Moses has recounted all of the wanderings of Israel and their exodus from Egypt, and he was reminding a new generation. They're on the border of the promised land. It's like weeks or months right before they enter into, into what will be Israel. He's reminding them this new generation of the covenant that God has made with them, a covenant that he makes with them as God's people. In chapter 5, he delivers the law again, saying that the covenant was made for them as God's people. 
Deuteronomy 6, Moses records what God had told him to command the people. In verse 6-3, this is important for where I'm going with this. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, the commands, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. So what we see in this book is that God is promising blessing, he's promising flourishing by means of their obedience as they go into a land that is full of resources that they would have no want. But underneath this, and this is very important, you need to listen to this, underneath this promise of blessing, supporting their ability to be careful to obey and to receive the blessing is who they worship. The next verses show this, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Moving down to verse 25, he says, And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Now here, their obedience is clearly called righteousness. It's the righteousness that's characteristic of God's people. Moses is showing here that godly living is considered righteousness in the same way that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is talking about righteousness as his people. It's a different than the righteousness that we have by faith, and I'll get to that in a minute. And much more could be said about Deuteronomy in the chapters that follow. But I'll just tell you that primarily this is really, and this is oversimplifying things, but it is an explanation and application of the law. But if we jump ahead to chapter 28, Famous chapter on the blessings and cursings that God gives. Chapter 28, verses 1 through 13, we see that the people will enjoy God's blessings if they obey his voice. Verse 2 of chapter 28 says, All these blessings shall come upon you. Then in verse 5, he says, Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. On and on with blessing. These are promised blessings based on what they're commanded in Deuteronomy 6.4, to love the Lord your God. And this is not a, a prosperity type of teaching. It is an association with who their God is and where their peace is, where their flourishing is. They will receive this blessing if they too do not turn aside from his word to go after other gods and to not go after God, other gods to serve them. All that same language. Deuteronomy 28, this chapter on blessing and cursing, has 14 verses on blessing and then 54 verses that warns of curses if they don't obey. The warning begins in 28.15, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. From that point on, curses upon curses. And the most significant of these comes in verses 64 and following. Look at it, if you're there or here as I read. And the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will God, your God will give you a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. 
In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. And in the evening you shall say, if only it were morning. Because of the dread that your heart shall feel. And the sights that your eyes shall see. What we see here is that Israel is warned about when they turn to idolatry, God will hand them over to idolatry. In a sense, treating them like the Gentiles who do not know him. They're going to suffer anxiety for every possible situation because they've turned away from him. They've turned to serve other gods. Deuteronomy 28.58 tells him why these blessings and curses will come upon them. He says, if you are not careful to do the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear the glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. What can we conclude from all this? It seems pretty clear that whatever leads us to have anxiety is linked to an idolatry that's going on in our heart. It's linked to idolatry because the fear that we should have for the Lord has turned from him to other things, whether it's some kind of idol or just the things of this world. And this is something that we all face in some way. But we do have a greater hope. Later on in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moses tells the people how it will come about that they will be able to love the Lord. He says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord. And your God, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. This is the promise of the new covenant that we have in Christ. It's the language of the new birth that we have by God's spirit. It's the language that, of new birth that we receive by faith. And this is the birth that gives us the saving righteousness that we need in Christ by faith so that we can live a life of righteousness that's devoted to God. Now, am I calling everyone here who has anxiety and a, an idolater? Well, not exactly. But what I am saying is that if you are a disciple of Jesus, you don't need to have anxiety. Jesus is giving a message to his disciples about what it means to be his people. And he's telling them, because they're his disciples, that they should not be anxious. They have a heavenly father. You have a heavenly father who knows all that you need. That's why as we turn back to Matthew 6, we need to pay attention to what Jesus says. He is telling them not to be anxious like the Gentiles. He's saying, don't be like those people who don't know me. He says at the beginning of the section that you're to lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven. And at the end of the section, he says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And underneath all of this is a reminder of the character and the nature of the God whose kingdom we are to seek. He is our heavenly father. He's the one who's loved us. He's the one that's called us to be his own. His disposition towards you by nature of your union with Christ is love. And in Christ, you have every blessing. This passage highlights the temporary things of the world And when our focus, our love and devotion is on what is temporary, we become anxious like unbelieving Gentiles, like the people around us who don't know what God has for us. So what do we do with all this? 
We should let Jesus' parable from the soils help us understand this. There's two types of concerns. Again, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. What cares of the world are laid on you? What is making you worry? As it relates to your possessions, does the news of a recession make you worry? Are your, your retirement investments looking down? Or are you deceived by the allure of riches? We're not commanded to not be rich, just not to set our hope in them, but to be generous. So are you pursuing riches for the sake of riches? There are times when expenses can arise. That's fine. We're to be good stewards. But are you sacrificing time that could be spent on serving those whom God has put into your life rather than serving for that dollar? Jesus wants you to know that you don't need to be anxious because you have a loving Father who provides all that you need. So, first, seek your treasure in heaven. Second, repent of any covetousness that you might have that divides your attention. And third, seek to serve and love the Lord your God alone. In this way, God has shown us how true devotion frees us from anxiety. The issue at hand is our heart. In this portion of the sermon, in all of the sermon, Jesus is telling his disciples that they need to have a greater righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And this section teaches us what that greater righteousness looks like. It's a, it's a greater righteousness that seeks to love God above the things of this world. And he isn't condemning us if we have material anxiety about stuff, but he is telling us to look inside, to turn away, to find true happiness to find true blessedness, to find our righteousness found by seeking God first and seeking his kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that's laid up in heaven for you. So we need to look at our lives. We need to look at what we're treasuring. A devoted pursuit of God will dim and cure the power that this world has on us over material things. The concluding command in Matthew six thirty four sums it up. Do not be anxious for tomorrow. Your Heavenly Father knows what you need, and there is grace for today's needs. This should give you confidence that you're going to have grace for tomorrow's needs as well. Let's pray. Father, we, we give you praise that you are a God who loves us, that you are a God who is good and generous. You are sovereign and in control of all things, and all things come from your hand. And we ask you, Father, to forgive us for in all of the ways in which our trust is turned aside from you. Help us to trust you. Help us to serve you in faithfulness because you've loved us. We thank you for saving us from our sin of covetousness and every other sin that turns us away from you by the sacrifice that we have seen in Christ that our sins are poured out upon him. We give you praise and we give you glory. Amen.